Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Batman, starring Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, and Kim Basinger. Screenplay by Sam Hamm and Warren Scarin, based on a story by Sam Hamm, and directed by Tim Burton. First time talking about Tim Burton today. Excellent. Welcome back to Rise Smile Films. We're starting a brand new film review cast this week, uh, the Summer Box Office Hall of Fame Part 2. We did this last year, and it was a lot of fun revisiting gems like Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Dark. So we figured let's revisit some like big films, films that most of the 80s went to go see back when they came out. Yeah, big summer tent poles where it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't one every week. It was, this is the movie this, this is the, summer. This is the one, yeah. yeah. So I think we, we, we picked the four. I think they're the highest grossing movies of their respective year. So we're starting with 1989, Batman, the first big screen iteration of the Caped Crusader, which was a long time coming, but we're going to talk about the crazy road to kind of get to this film. And all the ideas that they had before it, which just sounded terrible. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, right. <laughs> Excellent. And we're having um, this week a new uh, whiskey that um, we haven't tried before, but we've had Basil Hayden's before, but we haven't had Basil Hayden's Dark Rye. Yeah, I think this is kind of new for them. So yeah. it's a... Uh, dark Rye for the Dark Knight. There you go. Yeah. Let's try it. Cheers. Cheers. It's a smooth rye. Yeah, that is nice. Wow. Let me see that. That's... Yeah, they, so they blended in Canadian uh, port uh, casks, so like like um, like like, uh, like wine casks. I kind of taste a little, like yeah. a wine taste on the very back end. Yes. Do you taste that little salt caramel mm-hmm. kind of flavor? That's interesting. Almost a little sweet. Yeah, at the very back end. I almost want to say cherry. Yeah, that might be cherry. That's good. Right there. That's good. Kind of comes up through the nose, and there it comes. I'm all about a smooth rye. Like Some ryes will like hit you hard and stay with you hard. <laughs> well, we both really fell in love with rye that one night at the yeah. Whiskey Society. Yeah, exactly. That was a good one. That was a really good one. Eye-opening. So let's get right to it and our flight question. Would have thought Oingo Boingo could score a superhero film so well. And honestly, it like it's it's very important for the success of the film for me at least. Sure. Is the theme that Daniel and that Batman March got him the job. I know. And it just fits it's so we're gonna talk about it, but it, it fits the character so well. A a superhero film needs a good theme. Mm-hmm. Not that I hate nothing more than and Marvel's a little guilty of this, but a lot of their characters have just kind of like I can't even hum you their theme. Like, I can't hum you like Iron Man's theme. No. Or like Thor's theme. I can hum you Batman's theme. You know, I'm curious about, and I I don't have any backing for this, and we'll get into it later before we get too far away from the flight here. Mm -hmm. It's got to be pretty close to his score for film initial entry into it. Like, I know they did weird science, weird science, weird science, as Oingo Boingo. Well, he had done uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, did he do that? And then Beetlejuice with Burton. So that was kind of, he had developed a rapport with him so it wasn't his first yeah 
but it's certainly memorable. His first big, this is like the everyone's like first like big like foray into like something huge. It's good. Yeah. Why don't you hit us with the flight question? You came up with uh, our flight and nightcap this week, and I love them. One of the tough things about Batman is casting. And because he has such a magnificent rogues gallery, who you're going to use, and as important as who you use to suit the story, is who's behind the mask of the villain. Mm -hmm. So I chose three that hadn't been tackled and I think presented maybe some interesting opportunities. And two of them are kind of the same, and then one is not. So I'm going to ask you to cast three different Batman characters. And I want you to do Jason Todd, Red Hood, and Hugo Strange. Excellent. Let's do Hugo Strange first. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. You want to go first? You want me to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. Pretty cool villain, and he's going to tie into my nightcap question, actually. Cool. But uh, I wanted to go with this actor, and he's kind of showing up a little bit in a bunch of stuff recently. You might have seen him in that show Chernobyl that HBO did, and it's Jared Harris, if you recognize him. Yeah. I think he yeah, he'd fit that that build pretty good, and Hugo Strange is such an interesting character, but I'm going to talk more about him in the nightcap, but I, I, I want to go with someone like him. You know, without having done any research on this, the first one that came to my mind, but then I kicked it out because it's everywhere, yeah. is Mark Strong. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's pretty good. But he, that's, people are like, oh, he just got online and looked it up. So I, I kicked myself out for not sure. allowing that one. Yeah, I'm going to go with something that's kind of similar to that. Okay. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Wiry and spindly. Um, a little beady-eyed, he kind of fits for me. Yeah. The, the hair may be a bit different. Well, you know but... what, with, like, uh, Batman's just known for unorthodox kind of castings all around, so it would kind of fit. They could find a way to make that work. Did you ever watch Boardwalk Empire? Mm -hmm. I think that really showed Steve Buscemi's chops as, and not that Hugo Strange fits this, but Underworld mm -hmm. boss. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see him in that. Yeah. So that's my choice. That's good. Uh, which one do you do next? Let's do uh, Hush. Hush. Um, did I say Red Hood? I meant Hush. I, 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 yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I, meant, I said Red Hood and oh, I, I okay. meant Hush when we talked about this. Yeah, okay. I just said that. I chose Chris Pine. Okay. Um, I think Chris Pine is a little underutilized. Mm -hmm. And I think... Because that character is kind of an everyman on a street level sense, I don't think you need a big hulking or burly or mutated. I think he fits it really well. And a couple things I've seen him in lately really kind of have me on his bandwagon. Oh, yeah. A lot of people didn't see Z for Zachariah. Did mm -hmm. you see that film? Mm -hmm. You might want to check that out. Margot Robbie. Mm -hmm. um, I've been a fan of Chris Pine ever since that Star Trek reboot. Right. And he's been pretty solid in a lot of things since. What was, uh, the, what was the one? Um, the Western one. Hell or High Water? Superb in that. Yeah. I think he can fit that in hiding under the guise of Hush to sort of keep what is going to be revealed and let the character be more important than who's playing the character until it's shown up could also be yeah. a really interesting space for him. So I'm going to go with Chris Pine on that. Excellent. Hush for you. So hush for me, I'm going to go 
And like I could put like John Hammond like any he just he's mm-hmm. just like castable in like a lot of different things because of his look. I think of that slicked back Mad Men type of look that he goes with. I'm actually going to go Matt Damon with this one. Mm-hmm. Depending on who's playing Batman and Bruce Wayne, you know that they have to kind of play off of you know what he's trying to copy and replicate. But um, I think Damon could could really pull that off. This would have been perfect if like Ben Affleck was still Batman. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> buds. Yeah. So, well, I think I think he could fit pretty well in that dramatic uh, superhero space, especially a villain. And we haven't really seen Damon like do a villain other than like talented Mister Ripley. Right. So I'd like to see him do it again. What kind of Matt Damon? Do you want? Do you want sort of bornish, bulky Matt Damon, or do you want thin down ish Matt Damon? Mm, How do you see that? Maybe thin down Matt Damon. I'm with you on that yeah. one. Yeah. 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 Okay. So then that leaves Jason Todd. Yep. Um, this was actually the most difficult of the three for Mm me. Part of this has to do with who would be Batman Mm -hmm. and who would fit as a sidekick, but not so young because where are we going to get in the Batman Batman mythos? Jason Todd on his own is a little bit older, so he feels Mm 30-ish. Okay, I'm going to go with, I wonder if we have the same one here. Okay. Taron Edgerton. Ooh, good. I think that... I'm becoming a big fan of him. In fact, he's actually kind of my front runner to like kind of take over the mantle of Bond. Ooh, that would be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love him in The Kingsman. He was really good in Rocket Man. <sighs> even that terrible um, Robin Hood film that he did, which oh. I can't even remember. But it's not bad because of him. It's just no. a bad film. That's a good choice. I'm going to go with him. I think he could fit the the mold. I think he's got the look. He kind of even looks like him. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. Good. That's, I, I can totally see that. Yeah. I love my choice. And depending on who's playing, you'll probably need an older Batman for him to kind of fit in that role. And maybe this film had come out like five or six years ago because he's a little older now. But I try to look for someone who could play hero and then once killed, then becomes the mantle of the Red Hood. And so he's got to turn on it like a villainous turn. And I went with Michael B. Jordan for my choice. Mm-hmm. And we saw what he did with Eric Killmonger and Black Panther, but he's just a very... Whether it's Creed or Fruitville Station, like Chronicle, he's a really talented actor. He sure is. So I think we could like get on his side as a hero and then see his tragic turn to the dark side as Red Hood. I think that's great. Yeah, I want to see all those things. Uh, they they should now that they're redoing Batman and with Battinson or <laughs> whatever they're calling him, um, they should take a chance on some villains like these ones that we just haven't seen before. You know, we like the Joker for obvious reasons and Two-Face and the duality and all that, but take a chance on these guys because there's some interesting stories to be told with them that we haven't seen on film before. I think if you find something that's not as defined and expected from the crowd, then it gives you more outs. Oh, then that's good. It's just, it's the, in a different universe, but the same thing. I love it. The opportunity with Mm Ant-Man. Can you do it well? Yeah. And I think Hugo Strange presents some very interesting opportunities. Well, there. Hugo Strange was the main villain in Batman Arkham City, which was amazing. Yeah. It's probably the best of those games. And he was a very formidable opponent. Mm-hmm. Excellent, man. I love your cast. You too. I want to see all those villains on the screen that with, looks with those guys. Mm-hmm. Two people playing the same person. It's just the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Mm hmm. And I'm loving that. All right, let's keep this thing going and get to our review breakdown of Batman. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Get out of here. 
Batman starts out and something the first time I, I remember seeing it, I kind of didn't know what the heck was going on is you just get your titles and you get that great Danny Elfman march really setting the tone, but you're kind of going through, you think you're going through caverns or like caves. Like, I don't know like what the audience is thinking they're going through until we pull back completely and reveal that we are going through like the crevices of like the bat symbol, which is interesting. What would what, what you kind of think of just this opening? Cause it's, it's not, it's, it has nothing to do with the story. It's just kind of setting the tone. I think for, we're going to take this a little seriously it's interesting that that got me thinking about what we talked about later in the cathedral. Mm-hmm. I, look, I like it, and it's an interesting textural look mm-hmm. at shape. Yeah. A look at shape in the opening credits. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah. Vertigo. Yeah. And there's definite ties in this film for me Oh yeah. later on. Mm-hmm. And so looking back at that, and it's actually spinning, and the thing spins mm-hmm. into place. The, yeah. bat, the bat symbol spins into place. Yeah, It's a long time to get there, and you know, it's sort of letting you know and announcing its great big presence front and center for everyone to see this is Batman. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is the rock-like craggy structure. Mm. So as much as I find the spinning interesting, what do you think about why it looks like it's in stone? It's like very cave-like to me. Isn't that strange? Like bat cavey. Ah. And like his home and like this is like, like you know, like the birth, the birth of him, the birth of the character on the big screen. And they had a lot of fun with this, just this symbol in the lead up to this because a lot of the marketing, which... I'll wrap up with later. Just they, they just had a poster with just this symbol on it and, and a date. Yeah. No title, no actors. And people, some people would come up to it and they'd have to kind of look at it for a little bit. Like, what, what is this like? And then they would click and be like, well, that's the Batman symbol. Mm-hmm. And that we're just kind of establishing that here just right from the get go. But to me, it's all about Elfman's score too. that Batman March. And, you know, whether it's the Raiders, it's always kind of led by like the snare drum and it's got kind of like a nice kind of pace. Yeah. This is a great theme for the character. And like I mentioned earlier, it's something you can hum and it's something just so synonymous that it was so successful that when they did the animated series two years later, they had they incorporated that theme into the show. It was just so tied to the character at that point. And even when they, Danny Elfman, they brought him on kind of late to do the film, the music for Justice League. That disaster. He utilized that existing theme for Batman's theme. Like he was like, there's no other theme that you could really use with this character. And there's time I, I agree with him. <laughs> Which is better? John Williams Superman or Oof. Danny Elfman's Batman? <laughs> for me, well, that's my favorite John Williams score. Uh-huh. But you know how much I like this Batman theme. Which one suits the character better? <sighs> They both do. It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> they do. Uh-huh. I lean a little more towards this one, but that's a little bit of Batman bias. But Elfman's use of horns and strings and trumpets are echoed throughout this entire uh, score from beginning to end. And anytime Batman shows up, it can be something as like low as boom, 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 or it's like ba 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 It's heroic. And then I think the tone and the like whether it's like a forte or a triple forte, I think we know when we're supposed to be excited and triumphant with the character and dark and brooding with the character. 
I think that's really well said. Yeah. Elfman's score is more versatile than Williams. Yeah. John Williams is this grand pomp and circumstance, yeah. huge or- orchestral mm-hmm. movement with big, big music and crescendos and right. And it plays at one speed in one grand yeah, sequence. Yeah, well, that's well said. Which this, like you said, the snare. Mm-hmm. And then if you add a little bit more music accompaniments with the snare, it changes it. You hit the drums harder, it feels like action. I think mm-hmm. it's more versatile. And even in the love theme between Bruce and Vicky, there's like a piano and it's bum, 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 bum. Yeah. And it's more mellowed out, but it's still the Batman theme. So I think he had a lot of room to play with with that. It's really well done. So then we get to Gotham City. And one of my favorite things about, especially this first Tim Burton, and this was Burton pre-Edward Scissorhands when he, I think, really found his tone and style, is the look of this Gotham. It's got a real kind of art deco-y look. You know, a lot of that's courtesy to the production designer, Anton First. To me, this Gotham is kind of gross. It's steamy, it's rivety, it's it's kind of a disgusting town, especially in this kind of opening with like just like prostitutes like running the thing and bums and and whatnot. But like it it seems like a Gotham that needs to be cleaned up. You know, you know what I mean? It's got some work to do. The thing that's always struck me about Gotham is whether it's in the late eighties or in the mid two thousands or the mid nineties or whatever iteration of Gotham it is. <laughs> this is going to sound strange, but it always feels like flapper era, 1920s meeting contemporary fashion yeah. of the day in the decade. Mm-hmm. And if you watch that opening part of it's Burton, yeah. cause he likes three colors yeah. and they're all earth tones. Mm-hmm. Everything is a Brown, a black or a gray, mm-hmm. which I guess gray is a function of black. So yeah, there's very little light in his film, even early yeah. on. Yeah, they're pale. And, you know, aside from the hooker that rolls up on the little boy at the beginning, <laughs> who's very um, 80s, Sheila E., you know, whatever. Well, what's this family doing? Do they take, like, a vacation to Gotham with, like, the map? Like, it seems like the, like the worst. To go to the Broadway? I don't know. Go to, through this alley? But yeah. it's like the 80s got stuck in a time machine and went back to 1920, which is what always Gotham feels like to me. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, I'm sure we'll talk about the sets on that a little bit. Yeah. Gotham's tough. Yeah. And the reason I think Gotham is tough, I think we talked about this on a previous episode. Yeah. Is there is a character that is a city unlike any other mm-hmm. in superhero dumb? Yeah. Gotham in and of itself is its own character. Yeah. And with that, it presents the street level bandits and thugs and back alley drug kind of guys. And then the other faction would be the gangsters Mm -hmm. and then the super bad. Yeah. So you have like three levels. And I think that presents some interesting challenges for Batman, because if you just want some nice, good old fashioned fisticuffs, Mm -hmm. then he can go beat the crap out of whoever he runs in, in the street. Yeah. If you want to take that to the next level with a little bit of more organization. Now we start, get the introduction to some characters. Yeah. Black Mask, you could have sort of maybe work in Hugo Strangers as kind of fits a little bit. Some mm-hmm. of these characters as maybe assassins, mercenaries. Yeah. Now you're moving into those criminals. Yeah. That are the gangsters, Maronis. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the elite. Yeah. That's such a huge world. Mm-hmm. And it's why inside the DC universe, 
I think Batman has a world unto himself because just tackling that. And then you add all of his, whether it's Asriel or the Birds of Prey or whoever you want to put. We get nuts. It's almost like there's the DC universe. Yeah. And then there's Batman inside it. And no other superhero that I can think of in all of comicdom. Yeah. Has the same thing. Well, it's true. And then like a lot of most of Marvel stuff is just like present day New York. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like very real world settings and locations. Yeah. I think a lot of what this film is trying to do, and I don't envy them trying to like even figure this out, is just to establish a Gotham on film, which had never been done before. And the Adam West stuff doesn't count. No. It's television. Like you had to establish a tone and a darkness and then uh, this this hero lurking through the dark. And that's why I like this kind of opening bit, you know, that they mug the father, they take his gun, and then the, the bandits are up there talking. Johnny Gubbs got ripped and took a, a walk off roof. No big loss, right? And then the Batman rolls up on them, scares the hell out of them. And I love Keaton's delivery of... I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. I'm Batman. Keaton has such a great way of talking as Batman. It's so effortless to him, but there's just a slight like downgrade in the register of his delivery. And the look of him is, I think, important, especially with someone like Michael Keaton playing Batman, because Michael Keaton's like, like 5'10", we both of us could probably like kick Michael Keaton's ass, but he has an interesting edge to him. And when he's in that suit, like he's someone that would need the suit to be physically imposing. And when he like drop droops the cape and then kind of rolls in with the gadgets, like it, I, I I'm willing to like roll with this idea of, of him playing Batman. What do you think? Uh, so I guess we're talking about casting. Yeah, let's go there. Can I mention some of the other choices? Sure. And this is kind of the other problem too with like casting like a big superhero because it, it's weird to see a face. So whether that's Mel Gibson, Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Dennis Quaid, it, it's kind of hard to kind of bite because they're, they're just so the, the typical kind of idea of what you think Bruce Wayne and Batman should look like. They had the same problem casting Superman, Robert Redford, Paul Newman, like like the square jawed, like good looking, like actors of the seventies. So when you get someone like Burton in and he had just, they had just done Beetlejuice together and that's a very different type of film. It's very comedic. It's very bombastic. And Keaton's great in that film. And Mr. Mom or night shift or Johnny dangerous, like whatever he had done prior to that, a very comedic centric actor. So then when you put him in this, and you're like, I just don't see it. And when you kind of look at him, you're like, I don't know if I get get this guy as Bruce Wayne. But what Keaton's able to portray more than those other actors is, I think, just the tortured side of Batman. He does. He has like crazy eyebrows. Like he looks like he wants to like kill you without like saying much of anything. And I think when he's like, in order for me to go like beat up the street punks and like clean up Gotham, I have to dress up like this. Like, I got to be, I can't be, I can't roll up with my curly, with my turtleneck in my jeans. <laughs> I'll make fun of that outfit. I, I know. Okay, so to casting. I think in this film that Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton are more than adequate. Are they my favorite choices for either of them in the lineage? No, you can listen back to other episodes. But they are not a problem for this film. Mm-hmm. I think one of the issues with the casting that I have in this film 
is I can't stand everybody else in this movie. Yeah. Kim Basinger will only and always only ever be nine and a half weeks to me, which fine. Right. Fine. Yeah. Robert wool comes into this movie and I literally am tuning out. <laughs> Pat Hingle is only ever going to be a stamper. Yeah. Um, Billy D Williams is only ever going to be Lando and yeah. what a waste of a character and actor in this film. Okay. But we can talk about the side pieces and how unimportant they are because Nicholson and Keaton do do a really good job of playing those characters. And here's where I think Keaton succeeds and fails. Mm -hmm. Keaton succeeds as Batman to me from the cowl below from cowl to neck. Yeah. He has the mouth yeah. that fits <clears throat> when the cowl is off. I need, and it's literally as stupid as it sounds. Yeah. It's literally for me yeah. hair. Yeah. It's too curly for you. <laughs> I need, you, you brought it up. Yeah. I need Tom Selleck yeah. parted high and tight. Mm -hmm. I need John Hamm parted yeah. to the side. Slick, mm -hmm. madman. That's my, Kristen Bale. That's my Bruce Wayne. Now, it's not that it doesn't work. No, yeah. The flip side to that, though, mm -hmm. is I don't know if Bale works in the mask. Mm hmm cow below as good as Keaton does mm -hmm. because when Christian Bale speaks and you can only see his lips moving, there's almost, uh, almost a hint, a whisper of a lisp yeah. to his voice. Mm -hmm. Keaton doesn't have that. So it's strange to me how, that, that how might, they work. That might be him trying to do an American accent too from his like natural British. Either way. Um, it's it's an, it's it's tough. Where I buy into Keaton too is, you know, I'm all about a physically imposing six foot three Batman, and like it's fun to watch him just make mincemeat of thugs. Yeah. But when Keaton rolls in as Batman, like there's like an element of like, oh my god, he like might get it. Like especially in that cathedral fight scene, like he like he's getting it handed to him a little bit. Yeah. He has to you be a little more ingenious of how he's going to approach situations. And to me, it makes it a little more interesting watching him go about than watching just. Batfleck just pummel people in that ridiculous warehouse scene. Right. Um, I think Keaton has some, like, he has some inadequacies that he has to make up for, and whether it's the hair for you or his just physical, he's a slender guy. Um, he has to make up for it with just being physically unhinged. Yes. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. He is... The Batman gear mm -hmm. is really important for Michael Keaton's version of Batman to find success because mm -hmm. he's not ripped like like Bale at times yeah. and Ben Affleck at not so much in that, but he was puffy, but has been at yeah. different times. Yeah. Um. So the cowl and the bulletproof vest and the utility belt and all of the stuff that goes along with Batman are very important for Michael Keaton. And I think what that does is it allows, and I could see, and I know how important this film is to you, especially mm -hmm. when you saw it yeah. at a young, much younger time in your life. Mm -hmm. um, because he's an everyman and mm -hmm. literally an minus the money. Yeah. There's a chance. Mm hmm that's maybe in play for you in superhero power fantasies, power fantasies for adolescent boys. We can do a whole show on that, but that is a thing. Yeah, it is. 
So I understand like for you yeah. and me too, yeah. whether, t- I mean, for me, it wasn't Batman so much as it was Spider-Man. There's mm-hmm. no different. I mean, think about Spider-Man who never got out of high school. Yeah. What do I do for a living? Yeah. I never got out of high school. Exactly. So I understand that the connection to the every manishness of those characters. You said it pretty well just a second ago that the, the money aspect, money is a power for Keaton Batman. He has to utilize his funds to build a Batwing or the Batmobile or these gadgets because he needs those to help him out. Jesse, think about what you just said, yeah. and that's also why you and I, but especially you, yeah. also love James Bond so much. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. He's the same guy. Yeah. It's Q branch. Yep, exactly. Except instead of the cowl, it's a tuxedo or a immaculate suit with all the money mm-hmm. and all the gadgets in the world. Yeah. He's literally the same guy. Mm-hmm. So it's good. It's good. You know, there's a period of my life when I love both those guys too. I, I don't, I don't, again, I don't have the affinity for both of these characters the same way you do, but yeah. James Bond is, is on my list. I just got to say kudos to Burton and Warner brothers, or maybe not Warner, maybe it was just Tim Burton. And they were just like flying by the seat of their pants for willing to roll with Keaton because the outcry was unheard of. Warner Brothers received 50,000 petition letters saying, like, you need to stop the production of this film. You're making a mockery of the character. Even the producers, Bob Kane, they were like, we don't see it. And then that's when they, and I, I put it out on Facebook this week for, like, Christmas that year. They're like, the producers, John Peters and Goober, yeah, you got to put a trailer out. Like, they're flipping out. They're like, they're, they think we're making a joke of it. Put a trailer out. And so they put a trailer out. It's a minute. Just a, a series of shots. No music. There's no context. It's actually a pretty terrible trailer, but it got people hooked. They were like, I see the tone. And I know it back, not back in the late 80s, like comics like had kind of, and I know you, you've been down on these two comics before, but like, it, I don't think you could deny how important they were in, in making a paradigm shift of tonally how comics could be treated. And that's Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns. Sure. Prior to that, you know, we were still fiddling around with, you know, you know, colored panels and everything got a little more darker. And I think a little more adult, like we could do a little more risque things in graphic novels compared to the weekly issues. And they wanted to see that in film. And I think that trailer kind of showed we're taking a a serious approach to that. Look, those two comics you mentioned are seminal works. Mm -hmm. You're talking about Alan Moore and Frank Miller. Yeah. Now. My issue with Watchmen is it's just such an 80s middle oh, no, finger yeah. to the establishment, which it's 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 a personal thing for me. Yeah. But for as much as I may not love The Dark Knight mm-hmm. by Frank Miller, yeah. I love, mm-hmm. and I mean absolutely love, his, the DC version of him, which is... His Daredevil. Run. Daredevil. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I own all of it. I've, I love it. They're just swear by it. They had, there had to be a switch because like comics in like the 70s and early 80s are kind of... Not great. I think Frank Miller said it best. Yeah. And he said, doing an anti-hero in Reagan's America presented some very interesting entry points into story. And he's right. Mm -hmm. It's why at that time, Batman becomes so popular and we see literally the demise of Superman. Again, think about After Superman 2, and I know there's a lot of argument around that, but I think that's a fine film, entertainment-wise. Oh, it's good. But the rest of the Superman stuff... It's a joke. Is, yeah, they're not even trying. Yeah. And then watch the ascension of Batman mm-hmm. up through 
you know, the same era and then eventually meeting its demise until it's reborn again mm-hmm. with Nolan. Yeah. There is a definite arc and a trajectory that both of those stories go with the concepts and what's important in the United States. Yeah. And as for as much as I don't like Watchmen, I'm not going to argue it's a hugely important seminal comic and it does push the envelope. I just didn't find it as wildly entertaining as everybody. The Dark Knight, though, yeah. I do like. Yeah. I prefer the Bane storyline better. Yeah, Nightfall's amazing. Nightfall better, or instead. I think it just allowed comic creators to have more edgier tones. Here's another thing that's really interesting since you brought up tone. Yeah. If you go from, you know, the 1960s camp Batman. Which is what they thought they were going to get with this. To mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan's latter Batman. Yeah. This is the perfect intermediary. Yeah. Because it's done in a Tim Burton dark way, but there's still a little bit of tongue in cheek in this. And it's, you know, Jack Nicholson as the Joker dancing, um, shaking his ass. There's some, there's (laughs) all of his one liners. There's still a, but not done in a way that degrades the value of the property. Cause too campy. And then we get Adam West and Burt Warden all rolling our eyes and, waiting for sound explosions on the screen that say boom and pow. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice it's a good middle balance. piece. Yeah. Cause I mean, there are some, some moments in this that are attempting levity. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I don't think that's something that Tim Burton ever sways away from. Like yeah. that's going to kind of continue to be the mantle for him going forward. That's totally fair. I got to ask you one question. Okay. It occurred to me when we were watching this. Yeah. The Tim Burton, interpretation of Batman and how it played on screen. Do you think that Marvel emulated the same thing with the choice of Raimi for Spider-Man in one and two? Maybe. Don't they feel similar? Well, that, that's why I feel like this film's really important. Hugely I think, I, important. I think it, it showed that you can a take chances on unproven directors that have a visual flair. Yep. And B take choices on unorthodox casting. If you have a vision for it. And Batman's always found a way to kind of get into this mess. Whether and also take the slings and arrows that are fired by the public on the fanboy impossible to appease whether, hunger. Whether it's Keaton, Heath Ledger as Joker. Toby Maguire. Yeah, Ben Affleck as Batman and Robert Pattinson had his share of lashings. Like this franchise always finds a way to like kind of like make interesting choices that I think ultimately pay off in the end. By the way, I'm going on the record right now. Yeah. I think Pattinson's going to kill it. Yeah. I think he's got, we'll see, for me, maybe the best story of all of them to start from what I've read. Yeah. I'm so, I'm I'm ready. I'm I'm ready. The only thing that could kill that film is excess. (laughs) Yeah. And we've seen how that can play in superhero flair. I want to see a trailer because I'm not 100% on board with his look. Okay. Because he's got a good lower chin and i think they they're not, they don't have a suit that's really playing to those strengths it's funny that's the key isn't it very square well i want i want to say i could probably build your perfect batman if like we have keaton's face lower face we get clooney clooney's bruce wayne looks and then we get bell's physicality i think we got a pretty perfect batman for you yeah that'd be spot on <laughs> it's pretty good yeah <laughs> Excellent. Well, Which talk- mostly is Bale, though, isn't it? I mean, it's it pretty is. damn close well, to Bale. Well, they, they, I think they, they they honed in on something pretty good with him. Yeah. And then they got they got to do a nice arc with him over three films and kind of see like him go through just different trials and and failures. Yeah. 
Let's talk about Jack Nicholson as the Joker. A lot of people in consideration for this, whether it's Tim Curry, John Lithgow, James Woods, Robin Williams. But after you go with Keaton and everyone's losing their collective minds, they're like, you got to put a name in here that's going to like quiet that down. And like Nicholson was that in the 80s, like a solid, whether it's The Shining or Cuckoo's Nest, Witches of Eastwick or Terms of Endearment, like there's no denying that I think that Jack Nicholson's a very solid actor. Oh, oh, yeah. And I think my favorite thing watching him in this is comic book movies before we could even take them seriously. Like that's like it's still kind of almost a laughable like film adaptation at this point to like adapt comic books. We're not even going to talk about what Marvel was doing at this same time mm-hmm. with the Punisher and Captain America. Yeah. Corman's Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. He brought some, I think, cred, some street cred to this production. Academy Award winning act. And my favorite part Multiple, is... Multiple, I think, actually. Yeah. My favorite part is I think he, he looks like he's having fun playing this character. Sure. Whether it's the, the the gags or, you know, just kind of like his insistent laughing. And he's got a great laugh for the character. I I like I like his look, too. So we're now we're going with a perma-white Joker who's had his skin dyed versus someone like the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, the ledger that's applying the makeup on. He's dyed by the Axis Chemicals dump. We'll get to that scene here in a second. I like that fedora that he has. We don't have too many Jokers wearing hats with that purple, like rimmed fedora. I like that. It's and it, it's gangster, this clean a, and sharp. Yeah. Now there's different versions. Ledger's version is different. Yeah. Joaquin Phoenix version is different. And I like that about the character. He's he is dressed immaculately. Yeah. Very. But he's he's a mob boss in this. He is. Yeah. Again, we can get into that. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I, I'm certain about how I feel. Mm-hmm. He looks like Bob Kane's Joker taken from the comics. Exactly. But here's what's even better about that. Bob Kane's Joker was in the same suit all the time, every iteration. This is another different iteration of that with mostly the same color scheme, dressed immaculately I like that mime suit he has i like the mime suit i like the striped pants that he has with the vest and the the uh, he just he looks so good and even his um his art suit <laughs> yeah yeah he looks he looks of all of the yeah the clothing mm-hmm. designs he's the best by a mile oh cool by a mile nice let's talk about you know can i ask you what since you brought up though go ahead are you okay with the Nicholson body type to be that Joker. Yeah. Is your version of the Joker wiry and spindly or is he cumbersome? I don't know because I kind of like all iterations of the... And I think that's why I like the character so much is that whether it's Mark Hamill's voice in the animated series or Ledger's interpretation or this, I think you can just... Someone can play it so differently every time. And body type i think nicholson's body type actually fits keaton's pretty well or not like they're not pudgy but like they're not neither of them are physically imposing so i think they're a pretty great you know formidable opponent okay yeah that's fair Mm -hmm. i think that's a good take and i just like what they other than jared leto which is just a colossal failure but that movie's a colossal failure i think there's been more successes with portraying the unpredictability with him, his origins. And, and now this is kind of like a red hood origin, like, 
original Red Hood was dropped into a vat of chemicals. We're kind of getting that here. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that scene here now? Go. So here we are at Axis Chemicals. Um, we set up a, a Jack Palance, who might just be like the angriest looking man like of all time, who's like the head mob boss in town, and and like and Jack Napier is his like lieutenant who does his bidding. They're just kind of making their plays around the time Gotham's trying to go into debt, you know, trying to do their 200th bicentennial. Well, Batman's not even established. You know, the cops are trying to, like, arrest him and figure him out, and I I like that aspect of this story as well. So then we get this kind of big sting at Access Chemicals, and, you know, they got to kind of... Jack Palance is trying to set up Jack because he's sleeping with his girl, and so he has a sting operation, but this is the inevitable first interaction between Batman and Jack Napier. And not before it all kind of, all the shit hits the fan. I told you to kind of look out for this. So the the scene when Jack falls over the railing and he's like about to fall in and Batman's like, I think trying to help him up. There's like a, a shot reverse shot of Batman's like reaction, like looking at him and then Jack falling and then Batman again and there's like a look in Keaton's eyes. And maybe this is just me having seen this film so many times. It looks like he knows, he recognizes who this guy is, the man who killed my parents, which we'll talk about later. And that he lets him go versus just slipping out of his grip. And what that does for the morality of Batman's character for the rest of the film, I think is not troubling, but incredibly interesting. There's no question that he lets him go. Yeah. Now, I I hadn't noticed that until today when you brought it up. Mm-hmm. They kind of do some stuff a little bit later on that maybe undoes that. Mm-hmm. But I really like your take on this. Batman's quintessential problem revolves around <clears throat> morality. Yeah. For Batman, I think there are two characters, villain-wise, that are the most important for him. One is the Riddler because that's the sword sharpener for what Batman's actual super ability is, his intellect. Yeah, his brain. And then the other one is obviously the Joker, mm-hmm. and that's the sword sh- sword sharpener for his morality, yeah. his moral compass. Those two guys are essential. If he's going to let him fall, and maybe he knows it's a vat of acid, which is even worse than like letting someone fall off a building, because yeah. you're going to like burn. Yeah, And... As he falls, watch him and just sort of be okay with it. Yeah, it's not like he's shocked. Doesn't hide his eyes, doesn't turn away, just watches him plunge in. Mm -hmm. Then you have a pretty formidable protagonist, don't you? Because he's willing to go to those lengths that if Batman would just finally say, I'm going to finish this Joker guy off because I know he's going to escape again and I know he's going to murder again and I feel like I'm telling the story of the death of the family, but nonetheless, it's it's very very well said by Scott Snyder among others. Yeah, he can't. Yeah, and it's the one thing that keeps him from being the Joker. Yeah, but not in that scene. Not, man. I don't think in this film he I, just I, lets I, him go. I, and yeah, so I I it. think even in the finale, the Batwing attack, like I think Batman's rolling into that thing, like I'm going to kill this guy, like. Well, even when he captures the balloons and he, takes them skyward, yeah. there are people attached to the strings of those balloons. Yeah. And they all just fall. I love his attitude. It's just like uh, that's like Keaton's Batman is like, this is enough bullshit. There's enough screwing around. Like I'm I'm rolling in, in the bat wing and I'm taking them out. 
even when he in the finale scene when he gives it back to him and he says, "Have you ever danced with the devil in the pimlet?" and he punches him and he ricochets off the bell. And he says his first line after that is like, "Really, I'm gonna kill you." This Batman saying, "I'm I'm gonna end you, man." Yeah, but it's different just because of the familial tie now. Let's build up to that because that's kind of loaded too. So then we have the the birth of the Joker. And as a kid, this scene always scared the shit out of me when he rolled back into Jack Balance's office. And it's it's lit so well. It's like kind of silhouette. And you see kind of like the outlines of the white. And not until he comes into the, the full frame of the lighting. I've been dead once already. It's very liberating. You should think of it as uh, therapy. Maybe we can cut a deal. Jack. Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. And as you can see, I'm a lot happier. (laughs) It's kind of a cool reveal for his character. Again, it takes me back to the same ties that I saw a lot in this film, which Mm -hmm. is the shower scene in Psycho and the reveal as the shower curtain is pulled back and the face Mm -hmm. from dark to light and what you actually don't really want to see. It's done really well. Mm -hmm. I like that in the shadows, the perma white is just enough to sort of hint that there's fairly ghoulish. There you go. Perfect. You said ghoulish. Yeah, it's a great reveal. And then two things happen here. You see how bloodthirsty and ready Mm -hmm. the Joker is. And secondly, you brought it up later, and I think it's well said and exactly spot on, how gaggy he is. Even the way he kills Jack Palance here, <laughs> around the back, between the legs, 360, like the Steph Curry version of murder, right? Undress you with the dribble and shoot the shit out of and you. And he still kills the guy, but like, we're like laughing like at his like delivery of it all. And looks fantastic doing it. Uh, that top hat is it a bowler or top hat whatever he's like it looks more fedora like looks great i don't know if this dark ray is gonna last this is some good stuff mm, yeah. <laughs> so you have a couple interesting things in pretty close to sequential scenes batman letting jack napier die in the vat of acid and now the rebirth of the joker the death and the rebirth of the joker and how he's willing to carry out his actions. And so we have two pretty linear forces that aren't afraid to go to about any lengths. You don't expect that. I mean, you expect that in villains. And but mess- he, me- he does it in a way that's kind of like an F you smile mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, he does it again in the next scene when he's now taking over Grissom's mob <laughs> and says, yeah. well, shake hands if you don't want any part of it. And then lights this guy on fire. As a comic gag, yeah. the, the buzzer hand. Joy but, buzzer. But then he's just a, a smoldering skull after that. Like, he's always doing it for the joke, but, like, there's, like, murderous intent with each one. of. And then the, the, the following scene, he's like, and he signed it with this pen. And then it's like, boom, right in this guy's neck. And the pen is truly mightier than the sword. Like, he's got, like, a little kind of, like, one-liner to, like, kind of cap off this, like, I just killed this guy, too. Mm-hmm. We both love that love that little bit too. Like and that Keaton, that mime rolls up on Keaton, and like you got to go back and watch that scene. The look on his face, like unblinking, 
like stare of like get out of my face. Oh yeah, like that's a Keaton you don't want to mess with. Right, <laughs> right. But he he's got a look. He's got a, like he's got a crazy look, and I think Batman in this film like kind of needs that. He is a little unhinged, which makes me think he let him go in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I have sure a, he did. I have a question for you, Matt. You're always Mr. Question Guy on the show. Mm-hmm. You remember the first time you saw this film? Mm-hmm. Why don't you share? So we were on vacation, actually, with my dad in Colorado Springs. And it got released. We caught a showing of it at 730 at some tiny little movie house in the middle of nowhere. And um, I remember, you know, the hype machine for that had to have been two months in the making. Um, I think the video was a, already in pretty heavy rotation on MTV at the time. Mm-hmm. It was for Bat Dance. Yeah, the Prince stuff. And uh, I wasn't a huge Prince fan, but I remember wanting to watch that video over and over just because it was about the only thing you could get access to see the trailer. Because unless you were at the theater seeing a trailer, there was no internet. So that wasn't that often. So that was pretty much it, the well, movie. Well, people went nuts. Like for the, tra- They would call the theaters ahead of time to see when the trailer for Batman was playing. Go buy a ticket for like, Police Academy six, go watch the trailer and then bounce. Cause like you said, it was a different time. Like that was the only way to see a glimpse of what was to come. Now we just click it on the YouTube. <laughs> so I remember after we walked out of the film, I was mostly pretty pleased. I remember that, mm-hmm. but I also remember thinking like, man, that was a long movie Yeah, and having a bit of an issue with, for me at the time, Batman not being in it enough. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation with my, I saw with my dad and my brother about, I don't know if Batman should fight that way, um, which is a choreography issue, which I'm going to get to here in a little while. Yeah. But overall, it was definitely an experience. This is an important moment in film going history for all of us because this is superheroes are profitable again because Superman had done a good job of finishing that that belief. Yeah, I, I think it gave people hope in intellectual properties again. That something like that has a name, that has a tie to it, could be. Is Star Wars is long finished. Yeah, we're kind of on the last tales of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade this same summer. There's not a lot of like, like names like based on books like there is now mad max rocky and die hard were kind of all out of gas at that and those point. but those and are all within right spec'd yeah so yeah I, I i remember it and then i was into it i remember myself and my brother had plenty of batman gear and we got on the merchandise train and the whole nine so i, I know you're de- like, like everybody's waiting for this i can't imagine what it was like like in that year, just kind of like they call it Batmania. Just like everyone that Halloween was probably either like Batman or Joker. <laughs> just if I'm not mistaken, I think MTV had a contest where they gave away a Batmobile. It's pretty sweet. I'm yeah. And this is a cool Batmobile. Just kind of the look of it. Corvette, right? That they've sort of souped up. Mm-hmm. How about yours? Well, I was merely marinating in the wound. No, no, no. I know. But during I mean the first time you saw it. <laughs> during June of '89, so yeah, everything was after the fact. I don't know how my family ended up with two VHSs of this film, and then one was. Not by the time you were done, you probably broke them both. Well, one was tragically destroyed in like a. It got it got mangled. 
So I had the one and I still have it. But I watched that thing to death. That was my first foray. And I probably watched it at too young of an age. As I told you off mic, there's that line where the Joker says, come on, you gruesome bastard. Come to me. And I told that to my mom one time. I met hell for that. Yeah, you paid. Well, I didn't know what that meant. Right. I'm just repeating the film I saw. Oh, so my film viewings like weren't like regulated as a child, but I, well, I wasn't like rolling on The Exorcist at a young age. So it's my first foray into PG-13, something a little more adult. And like you said, what's interesting about it is you're right. Batman's in one, two, three, four, se- like four sequences in the film. Yeah. And for someone at that young of age, that should, that should be a bo- kind of a boring film. Like that's kind of paced. Like you said, 20 minutes could probably be trimmed from that. And I probably agree with you. Because I was a little bit bored. I still was overall pretty happy, but I remember feeling like, I'm kind of bored. Mm-hmm. And even tonight or yeah. today, yeah. I told you there's some bullshit in here that doesn't need to be in here, but oh, keep yeah. going. Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. But I ate it up yeah. and I watched it over and over. And like I said, I had the die cast uh, replicas of the the Batmobile and the Batwing and I would reenact the, the parade float scene. When we'd go grocery shopping, I'd be j- dancing like the Joker in the aisles like a fool. I'd, I danced to this trust and party man by prince like constantly and i think it's just it's an interesting film because it's the last foray of the 1980s before we get into the 90s and i think the tone of it really fits that whether it's the prince music or just kind of the look of it like just kind of like the mix of the sound and the fashion feels kind of of that era I, I've always loved this film and like you always kind of like I like I like it because I grew up with it and I'm totally guilty of that here. Keaton's always been my favorite Batman for reasons that I stated earlier. I think he physically is psychologically perfect to play this character. And that's why I liked his turn in Birdman because yeah, this film kind of wrecked his career too because typecast. Well, self-referential, right? Yeah, and he couldn't get away from it and that's probably why I don't like Batman Returns as much. That's That's another... Michelle Pfeiffer and Danny DeVito are incredible in those in that sequel. Keaton looks like he doesn't want to be in that movie. Like mm. he looks like he wants to be doing other things. And I, I don't blame actors for wanting to be other things once you've kind of made a name for yourself, which is what this film did. But here I I, I see, I think, him trying really hard. And I, I, I've always bought into it. Man, it made me dress up as Batman. I think for kids in the 90s, I think they just gravitated towards Batman, too, because that's what we had. We didn't. Well, we had Spider-Man cartoons, but the movie was 12 years away. Mm-hmm. Superman was long dead. Mm-hmm. Marvel was going through bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, right. We had Batman. We got four films in the 90s of varying quality. We got a great animated series. Mm-hmm. The merchandise was off the charts. And... Man, it's always been important to me, but I think more so than anything. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually save that the, what I was just gonna say there for my my rating because it's it's poignant and important. <laughs> I think one of the things that's a lasting impression on this film for me is conflict. Mm-hmm. Like I was conflicted. A lot of my friends absolutely were over the moon with this film, yeah. just gaga about it. Yeah, and I liked it, but I can't tell you I was like just starry-eyed lost in the wonder of batman mm-hmm. now again not my name go-to superhero at that time yeah but i'd read his stuff i had a, i had a, a life with batman i watched the 60s stuff and syndication on mm-hmm. wherever they showed at tbs or wherever i caught it as a kid growing up so i was familiar with all that the other thing too that really left me in a bit of a conundrum is 
I do not like Prince. Yeah. I've never liked Prince. Speaking of which. Gentlemen, <laughs> let's broaden our minds. Lawrence. Oh, man. <laughs> That song's not even fucking trying. <laughs> it's such that's trash. No, like if you only knew just how much I would just like bounce around the oh, house. Oh yeah, <laughs> like no, no. It's like oh, well, this album. This, this isn't Prince's best effort, but like I know why they did it. And We're celebrating a great character with a name in rock, mm-hmm. but outside of like maybe people are going to be like, that's the song of Prince that you like. I mean, there's like Thieves in the Temple. You got the look and maybe Raspberry Beret. And I have the whole anthology and have listened to it cover to cover. I mean, I guess I'm okay with, with uh, little Nikki, I guess. Yeah. It was hard for me to want to just sit down and watch whatever Prince video. I don't know if it was party man or bat dance or whatever the hell it was. There's two videos for those ones. Yeah. With him in there because I hated his music so much, Yeah, but I had to endure his music to get the video yeah. to see the film in a trailer version. So it's an interesting spot to be in. Like that came on today. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this movie since the nineties. It's been, been a while. long time. Yeah. And even still now that party man song, that song sucks eggs. And I know it's not trying to be like rock and roll music on the radio. I get it. Yeah. But it just takes me to a place. It's just so off-putting. Despite that, though, Jack Nicholson does a really, really great job of doing the vandalist in the museum diner, which we had a conversation yeah. about. He's good in it. Yeah. So Again, having fun. Right. Yeah. To him. To having fun. Yeah. In film, because we should do that more often. Christian Bale. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's my my take on that. But you have an interesting, maybe we can talk about a little bit about that during this cast. Cause you grew up in the eighties, but you have an interesting kind of take looking back at that eighties. And especially in the stranger things world we live in of this over nostalgia for that particular decade. Um, okay, so if you want me to be frank about it, I'm not no, no, trying no. to be contrarian. No, no, save it for one of the coming episodes. Oh, okay. All right. But this is just interesting just because of your age. And then like, we're getting out of the eighties, like when you saw this. So and you're, if we can count that high, my age, my God. Yeah. Just a new one added another number on there. Well, I didn't. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry, dude. It's okay. <laughs> um, no, but I'm with you. It, this isn't Prince's best effort, but like it, it became just this money churning machine of, we need the score, and then we had the accompanying album. And I can't think of a lot of films that like did that other than like Ghostbusters or like Top Gun at the time. You know what else is really funny about that? Yeah. The song for the next one, mm-hmm. which is Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. Yeah. I didn't like U2 either. I still don't really love U2. Mm-hmm. I, say, I will say this. Yeah. It's like one of the three best concerts I've ever been to was U2 Live. Like they are built for anthem rock. Yeah. I hated that song too. Mm-hmm. And I even did... Here, the people are like, oh my God, Matt, your music taste. I kind of do like Seal. Yeah. I hated Kiss from a Rose too. Like all three of those songs, I, ugh. I love Kiss from a Rose. Ugh. 
But I got this like tied from like Batman to you know what I mean? Like like I got like a partial bias, which I shouldn't even be no, in no. like the voting party. Right. I, I totally get it. Yeah. Um use your illusion. You know, the um GNR stuff from T two. Yeah. That's a terrible song too. Yeah. But I love that movie and I love GNR. Mm-hmm. So what the hell's the name of that song? Oh, Gosh. I'll look it up. Oh, my God. Yeah. This rye is having an effect on me already. <laughs> That's not a great song, but I like that. It, it's, it's it's different because that song comes on, yeah. and it did the same thing for T2 mm-hmm. that this did. You could be mine. Jesus Christ. You, yeah. you could be You could be mine comes on yeah. and does the same thing what T2 did, what Party Man and Bat Dance didn't. It's just, it, well, T2 is a much better film than this. I won't deny that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was trying but to... But I, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like, if I had to pick, I would choose not to have any pop songs or songs in general in my films. I just want to score. Did you never think it was weird to score a song to a movie about the character in the movie? Yeah. I mean, I know, like, Ben Midler did it with The Rose, but, like, come on, other than that... Well, that's it became a package deal. Isn't it? Be- it don't it, you think that's weird? It became producers saying, we're going to package Prince with the Batman, and... The total I'm going to tell you here in a second is just going to blow your mind, but I totally know why they did it. Can I tell you the, a little bit about the road to get to this film real uh, quick? Please. And then yeah, we'll, we'll bounce back in. Yeah. Back in 1979, the producer, Michael Uslan, um, I think was at the University of Indiana, and they offered the students like a chance to like teach some like accredited courses. So he pitched a course on the history of comic books. That's cool like comic book mythology and they thought he was insane until he like compared it to like Moses and Superman is like identical. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, you got something there. So he did that. And then like the news came like, I can't remember what station, but they came and like filmed him teaching the class. So he got some notoriety he ended up and Stan Lee offered him a job and DC came calling. So he actually got a little job at DC and I don't know what the state of rights were at the time, but Warner brothers didn't own like DC like entertainment at that time. So him and Benjamin Malinker, this other guy that he met up with, they bought the rights to Batman and then tried to pitch it and no one wanted to make the, the, the film. So then they got Peter Goober and John Peters, like longtime producers in the game. It took them from 79 to 1980. It took them 10 years to even get anything going on this thing. Wow. But again... Now it would be easy if someone's rolling around with bet. We want to make a Batman. Oh yes. In the eighties, we don't want to touch these superheroes. Like no one's going to take that, that stuff seriously. Like it was such a different compared to today, especially Yeah, such a risk. And so if, because comics back then were treated as adolescent fantasy, adults feel like no one else wanted to read that stuff. Right. And mom threw them away threw thousands of dollars away in the trash. Mm-hmm. This film is just like an interesting apex that it was a long road to get there, met with a bajillion controversies, and then finally they're able to get something in the can, and everyone just it went apeshit for it in the summer of 89. Like, they they lost it. It's just so strange then that after all those 10 years go by and the trials and failures and resurrections and all of the things that went in with Batman, that somehow Prince and... A couple other pretty prominent artists were sort of attached at one point, either heart 
or partially to this project. And the guy that I think they had probably the easiest time to get, which would be Danny Elfman, mm -hmm. does the best job with the music in this film. Yeah. I just, who was it? Unless it was just a marketing machine, maybe, that said, you know what we need? We need prints. I get we need a video. <clears throat> like, that makes perfect sense. It had to be on a Warner Brothers exec that said, Prince made Purple Rain. He's under Warner, Warner, the Warner Media label. Let's get him to do a couple songs. Maybe Prince had to fulfill that just to finish the contract agreement that he made with them. Because maybe, maybe, Purple Rain's a terrible film, too. Well, maybe he had to do that to do something else he wanted well to he do. had another film that he did there's another film that There's he something did. silver moon oh, yeah under thing. the silver or under yeah. the cherry moon yeah a lot of times artists do that they they, they do one thing so it they can do another thing prince and batman don't yeah. just well, that's so weird yeah okay it's bat dance <laughs> party man so then we get the this kind of first confrontation between batman and the joker and then the reveal of my favorite this batmobile like it looks like a bat we yeah. get this nice chase through the streets of Gotham and then kind of like him, him kind of, you know, running into these, into the, the, the Joker thugs, Bob the goon. No blood. Hey, who is this guy? Check his wallet. <laughs> Wait a minute. What is that? Some kind of body armor. He's human after all. Take off the mask. I love that line. Check his wallet. It's funny. Like, like you could find it. This guy doesn't have a wallet. You see what he's wearing? Right. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's yeah. I don't. I don't know. Like I'm just like to me. Like it's it's gonna be hard for me to just kind of like be critical of it because I can be critical. It's a film that uses a lot of models and this and that and mm -hmm. like you said, like you said well in that that museum scene that everything kind of looks like like a, a line queue at Disneyland, which. It probably was like cardboard spray painted to look art deco, but I don't know, just something, something about it. Like watching to me is different probably than watching for you. Cause like, I'm, I'm just like transported back to watching on that VHS that like I watched to death. Like I'm, I'm kind of missing like, you know, like the tracking, there was a great uh, diet Dr. Pepper commercial on the VHS too, like before the film started. I remember that. Really? And there was like a Bugs Bunny thing and there was like a Warner Brothers movie club that you could get a bunch of Batman merch and like Bugs Bunny like did the thing. That's cool. Before the, v, the, before the film started. No, Jesse, and that's so important. Mm -hmm. So much of film is the ties you draw with it. So a lot of people ask, where does your point of view on film criticism come from? And look, I approach it in the same way that we approach any kind of story. Mm-hmm. And that's as you're reading or listening, you do three things, either consciously or subconsciously. Compare the story to something in your life. Compare the story to another story. Yeah. And then compare the story to something happening in the world. Film to self, film to film, yep. film to world. And that's so important. So I'm not going to say that you're wrong or because I'm not even I don't I don't even think you're wrong. Like yeah. I, I agree with you in a lot of this. Yeah. I got my rating isn't going to be that much different than yours. To go and say, well, those sets look like the line queue from Disneyland in 2020 <laughs> yeah. is picking pretty low-hanging fruit because that's like saying, I hate green screen in 1950 for special effects. Do you know what I mean? Like, this how can you say that? This film's 30 years old. Right. Film's as old as me. So to take, well, you know what else looks really bad now, but it looked good then is 
Spider-Man in Sam Raimi's first one, he has no, he has, there's no depth to him. And there's to, no volume. He had to start somewhere. Right. And, and you know what this film taught me too? And I, I wanted to mention this earlier. It taught me kind of story structure in, in a way. Oh, yeah, sure. I think there's three very definitive acts of this film. Like act one ends when the Joker's hand comes out of the, the like the chemical thing. Yep. Act, uh, act two or act uh, three begins when the the Batman vault opens up and he suits up for this final confrontation. Exactly. So yeah. that's me at like four or five kind of realizing that like this film has... Beginning, middle, and end. Phases. Now that's great. Yeah. I wonder if this the Art Deco bit that you're talking about, the line cue at Disneyland, is more a function of Tim Burton than it is poor set design. And there's a whole <laughs> little bit I want to do on Tim Burton here in just a minute too. Good um, now. I want to compare Tim Burton to and his career to two bands. Okay. And the two bands I want to use are Van Halen and the Beatles. <laughs> okay. Okay. After the Beatles did help. Okay. In 1965, their next two albums. I can look at I name them. Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul and Revolver. Ugh. So you've figured out how to do this type of pop, everybody likes it, friendly, mm-hmm. and now you kind of start pushing the envelope. And then after Revolver and Rubble, Rubber Soul, I don't want to say a misstep, but kind of a detour with Sgt. Pepper, and then from that point on, it's kind of it's pretty much over, really. But they took something that they had figured out and then they expanded on it and got a little experimental. Mm-hmm. Okay, so do everything from Van Halen yeah. up to 1984. Mm-hmm. And then the sequential release is 5150. Yeah. So they kick out David Lee Roth, yeah. bring in Sammy Hagar, ugh. and ugh, <laughs> ugh to all of it. I don't even like Van Halen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They make the same album. They've made the same album 40 times. Tim Burton yeah. didn't go the way of Revolver and Rubber Soul, in my opinion. Yeah. He got really good at what he figured out how to do, mm-hmm. and he just continued to make 1984. Yeah. Tim Burton is the Van Halen of directors. And it happened after this film. Right. Edward Scissorhands. And everything else is like, I'm going to cast the same Johnny Depp. Mostly it is going to be Johnny Depp. But I like Ed Wood. Okay, that's... That might be his one, that might be his touch on Rubber Soul. Yeah. That might be it. Yeah. That's in my life on Rubber Soul. Uh, okay. That's my favorite Beatles song. All right. Yeah. But do you know what I no, mean I by totally, that? No, I totally mean what you, he, what, yep. He is a one trick, yep. one note, one one man, like one trick pony. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Tim Burton. Like I, I, I actually, my favorite Tim Burton films are Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and this one. And that's all before he like... Let me get a little weird with it. And Edward Scissorhands, and then you have like, well, he didn't direct uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, but that's like his idea, and he's like a producer on the tone of that. doesn't even count. Yeah, but like... uh, I don't like that movie either. It just continued on in that that path. I know exactly what you mean. That's a great comparison. And so I think the line cue at Disneyland... Yeah. He's going to cut out some of the shtick that is a little gaggy and kind of comedic, although there are moments where we see Johnny Depp kind of try to pull that off a little bit later on, still being kind of funny. Mm -hmm. He just never expanded his franchise 
and his wheelhouse, his volume of attempts to make a different movie. Yeah. And I think part of the problem going back to what we said with the set design in this is I'm so familiar with what he does Yeah, that it's easy to not remember like this is when it was just starting. Mm -hmm. This just feels like another puzzle piece in the sum total of dark Gothic Tim Burtonville. Yeah. And so that's not fair to say, well, the movie just fits in looking back at the entirety of career is not measuring Batman. Those are two different things. Yeah. So that's my take on that. Oh, that's good. Okay. But the Joker's whole goal in this entire film is he's like so eighties, like it's all like surface looks like consumerism, uh, tainted the, Gotham Cosmetics line with uh, Smilex uh, chemicals. And man, everyone's growing the nastiest zits and the newscast <laughs> looks like hell. Uh, and so Batman cracks the code that it's a combination of these that'll... And that almost seems like so minimal to like what actually is going on, which is Batman's confrontation with the Joker. And man, we get this, we get this great bit from Keaton here. You know what happened to this guy, Jack? Mistakes. And then he had a. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I always ask that of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. That's a crazy man right there, and I'm talking about Keaton. That's your crazy Keaton. <laughs> in Lego Batman, there's a scene there at the beginning where he's um kind of uh, going through his like Batmobile settings and and or his like and, and the one he selects is let's get nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I lost it when I saw that. That's a great movie too, by the way. Um, yeah. So this is Keaton kind of coming unhinged, but it's that line: "Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight?" That's like, wait a minute. I've heard that before. So this kind of undoes my theory mm-hmm. where he would have realized it sooner. But let's talk about this moment. Never seen this scene before, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Two things, right? Okay, so Batman's parents being shot in the alley and Peter Parker getting bit by the spider are the two most overplayed things in all of Comicton. <clears throat> but it wasn't yet. It wasn't the first time Yeah, here. as we were kind of trying to figure out, like... N- Super Friends, Adam West, Batman. Any iteration had not like shown this. You got to dig through the annals of early Batman to see what happened to Martha and Wayne. Yeah, Thomas. Thomas Wayne. Martha. Um, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. It's uh, it's not even the first issue. It's like the tech. It's like like the the sixth or seventh one. Like before. Like wait, let's explain what like this guy's issue is. Yeah. On screen, I don't think we had really seen this before. So now it's we've seen it to death. Here, though, we're seeing like this incident for the first time. And then the screenwriters t- decide to do a little twist on it, where in the comics it's Joe Chill, just street-level scum. And in this film, they make it Jack Napier, which for the confrontation of antagonist and protagonist, I think it fits the finale very well. Oh, superb. And I'm a Batman fan, so I'm not one to get like my, my panties all wadded about... like little changes like that because I think it fits the story that they're telling. Right. It gives them a history with each other that makes it not one dimensional. Mm -hmm. 
So this is a battle that's been brewing for 25 years or however old yeah. Michael Keaton is as Batman in this yeah. film. 32-ish. So you take that and add to what we saw Batman do to him earlier, which is drop him in a vat of acid and now add a healthy dose of vengeance in there. Yeah. And boy, the Joker's going to rue the day because he's going to pay. Yeah. And his, you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Yeah. You almost wonder if maybe he should be asking himself that because he just picked the devil and that's Batman. Well, that's where we get the, this great bit here. Where we get more gag from Joker. And now, folks, it's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Me? I'm giving away free money. And where is the Batman? He's at home, washing his tights. <laughs> so like what you just said, like, I poked the bear. Mm. There he is. Yeah. And, he's, and I, I love Keaton, because before that, he just rolls the Batmobile through Axis Chemicals, destroys the whole thing, probably killing like 20 Joker goons. Easy. No remorse. Keaton's uh, Batman at this point is just like, I ain't messing around. I'm going in. I'm taking this guy out. I'm taking <laughs> with the flow with the guys hanging. I never, I had never thought of like, yeah, there were, you're right. There was guys hanging from those. <laughs> That's what keeps those balloons ground level. As he's dr- flying through the cityscape, which I like that. I like that the, the bat plane has always been one of my favorite bat vehicles, but like, like they did it practically with like, like scale models and like, just like not even like stop motion. It was just like, it wasn't even like star Wars technology. It's just like, it's like they're models. Yeah. And they made them fly and look cool. And man, he goes in and gets those puppets and, or the balloons and just kind of lets them go. <laughs> it's yeah. He's not messing around. I love. And then as he wheels around now and, Beep, 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 and then rockets, Gatling gun. This guy's not going to negotiate with the Joker. He's no. going to take them all out. Blow them to bits. Oh. What do you think of this kind of finale sequence here with, like, I'm going to I'm gonna tempt the people of Gotham with cash, and then, like, I'm just, I, he, Joker's in it just to kind of, like, he wants to give everyone a smile and just poison them all until he's at the tippy top. He, as he said earlier, he wants to run the city into the ground as much as possible. I think the set pieces are appropriate for the lead up that we've had. It needs to be a big, big final showdown. Why not choose a parade or an amusement park yeah. or some gothic looking cathedral? Yeah. And they decide not to go with the amusement park, but not far from it because the balloons kind of have that effect. Yeah, it's big and flashy and splashy. All the things that I need it to be. Like, I don't want some little chat in a bar. And, you know, some fight in the alley. Like, if we've built it up now for two hours, pay it off. It fits the bombasticness of the Joker, too. And, you know, it's kind of built up with the Joker and the smile and the way he's been deformed and the surgery that he's had to have that's left him not only perma-white but with the terrible smile on his face. Why he wants everybody to pay. Like, you get it. I mean... I look like this. I'm cursed with this. I'm going to take you all down like this. I've never been a good guy. Like, but I'm, I'm doing it because I think it's funny. I get it. Yeah. So I think his motives make sense. Yeah. Um, I also really kind of like the idea that what better way to get people to show up than give them money. Yeah. And sure enough, they come a flocking. And what, what helps this is that Batman's not necessarily like 
he's being chased by the cops earlier. He's not necessarily on their side. The people don't know what to make of him. He's kind of mysterious. He's in the shadows. He's not like, oh, yeah, we see the signal and like, yeah, he's coming to save us. Like, we don't know what this guy is flying his plane. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think one of the things that hampers this film a little bit is it does get a little bit clunky and a little silly at times with its own ambition. And it's tough not to do that with the Joker. Yeah. He's just such an over the top character. I mean, purple and green and the big smile and perma, all that stuff. Like, how can you make that grounded? Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that is the first part that I'm like, yeah, maybe we should have thought about something a little different here. And that's okay. The balloons have been picked up and left in the heavens with the Joker's goons falling to their death, which is a, that's hilarious. Just desserts for those <laughs> bastards. Gosh, that's like a new layer to the film. Every time I watch it now, you know, one of the things that you're really hard on with Dawn of justice is yeah. the lack of collateral damage with buildings coming down to metropolis all the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. This movie is not afraid of doing that. Yeah. Like there's one guy that crashes through a sign on the street. Yeah. That guy's dead. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I mean, they're stormtroopers, but they're dead. You know, I don't have Do you a, know what I mean? like, when, you know what I mean? They're, they're, nondescript baddies but they're dead yeah i don't have a problem with it in this one because this is the, the keaton we've already established that this is the type of batman sure. he's willing to play and i think i got a little spoiled with uh the nolan's take on it because mm. there's a very clear morality line that he's not willing to cross right and you do see the differences between good and bad very clearly and then donna justice is like yeah i'm just murdering everybody <laughs> right <laughs> again so the part that's kind of a little <clears throat> eyebrowish to me the bat plane descends on the joker in front of his float that's celebrating gotham's 200th anniversary mm -hmm. and laser sights are fixed infrared gunning system set to go i mean it's yeah, ride I, hard or die time i don't and, know how he missed him <laughs> and then the joker pulls out like a six foot long pistol from his waistband which if the barrel was that long, it'd have about the ability, the, the stopping power of like a 22 maybe or a BB gun. Yeah. And just takes down the bat plane with one well-played, like that's, and I, I, I really do understand. No, it. yeah, yeah. And yeah. we've seen it. He's got the little flower that squirts acid and mm -hmm. his dancing, like I get it. Yeah. But I wish we had a different way to get to where we're going to get to. Eventually the bat plane comes crashing down. And your, your first question was, Am I okay with this? I'm okay with all of it up to this point, yeah. except for the gun. And that's pretty nitpicky. Mm -hmm. So we have to get them face to face at some point. Yeah. I don't want to watch Batman kill Joker from a plane. Yeah. What a stupid. It's got to be face to face, especially after this confrontation we set up that right. it's, I killed your parents. Right. So we get into this cathedral. Again, you said, yeah, very vertigo like with like the ascension of this, this wood. It's like a wooden cathedral staircase. It's so vertigo. Yep. <laughs> And then even North by Northwest a little later on, too. Yeah. Like some obvious uh, ties, uh, nods to Hitchcock here. And then we get this kind of kind of final. And Batman must just have like a severe concussion. Like, I don't think we've ever seen Batman like this either. Like mm -hmm. in any of the other entries where he's like bleeding, limping from his plane crash, which would have killed any regular person. And so he's kind of struggling in this last bit. I always like that fight he gets with that like big burly guy. And he's just like getting his ass kicked. Oh yeah. <laughs> boom, boom. And then like, like first of all, Keaton, like it was already kind of like 
would have a hard time with that. But he's like all beaten up and everything. Again, it's that intellect that he like uses to kind of get a one up on him. Right. That's why I kind of like that little sequence, that little kind of dance that they go through. We see his use of money, the gadgets, where he stops the flippy guy, pops him in the face. And and then you had this one where he's like, I gotta hide, I gotta hide in the shadows, and then I'll I'll get a one up on this guy. Mm-hmm. I'll meet I'll meet brains with Braun. Mm-hmm. And that's what Keaton I think is good at in the character. Yeah. Even so much in the second one too, as much and the other problem I have with the second one is everything looks a little too clean for me. Like he gets an upgraded suit and it's like really crisp, like like ab metal and like the suit looks a little more refined. Like here it looks a little more kind of raw and kind of like put together. And I like that look. Kevlar versus custom fitted swim gear in the Olympics. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. Okay. So then up the bell tower we go. And I like that he drops the bell down and it takes out the steps. Cause then we'd have to mess around with the stupid cops trying to come up. Cause that's always a big pain in the ass. It's like, well, how are we going to get the cops out of here? Cause no one cares. Exactly. And then we get to what should the Joker be doing as he's waiting for Batman with the woman held hostage? And there's any number of answers there. Let me go or she dies. You either do A or B. If you make choice A, B happens. If you make choice B, A happens. That's the Harvey Dent, um, Mm -hmm. Rachel from um, Dark Dark Knight. Knight. Mm -hmm. I just wish he wasn't dancing with her. Yeah. I get it. I understand why. Yeah. Like he's, they've kind of played him off as a bit of a cad, kind of a ladies man, even though not, that's not the right way to say it, but in the pursuit of ladies man, I just wish that there was some more action that was more important than yeah. just watching them waltz. Yeah, I totally get it. It, it. I mean, it fits his like kind of off the beat type of character that they've already established but I kind of wonder too. I was like, I wonder if the Joker kind of knows he's going down and he's just kind of trying to make the best of it. Like, while well, he's like biding time. I don't know. But I'm with you. Like, you, they could speed that along though. She you, could be putting up more of a fight or something. Yeah. I think as we're watching Batman ascend the staircase up, which is three or four minutes, that time could be done or used more effectively if it was actually Batman actively engaged in something against the Joker. And if he's got, like, if Batman has the utility belt and the things and the gadgets, then maybe the Joker has his own set of those things too. And then we get gadget versus gadget, and that's better than up the staircase, up the staircase, waltzing up the staircase, waltzing up the staircase. Just get on with it. Mm -hmm. Because we want to, yeah. because that's just filler. This was a late, I mentioned this writer strike that was happening at this time. This finale was kind of a late extra addition to this, this final. So I wonder if you feel that way. Cause it does kind of feel kind of like thrown together and yeah, like they didn't quite know what to do. Yeah. I mean, it's as ridiculous as the damsel in distress tied to the train tracks, mm-hmm. but she's tied in a chair with her hands behind her and there is some ticking time bomb element and it's either you can get me or she bites it, or you can get her yeah. and rescue her, and I get away. That's why I think the finale of, of Dark Knight kind of plays a little well, because there is that ticking element yes. with the bombs on the fairies, mm-hmm. and I'm, i got to stop this before someone makes a so horrific... Blow dis- the other one up? Yeah, and in this one, yeah, he's just like, let me just get up to the top of this thing. I just wonder if maybe they decided... Oh, we have to have something here. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, actually. Because you might even get that he's trying to court her, mm-hmm. but it's just done so knock off haphazardly schlockily like if he's yeah, got her at the chair yeah. at gunpoint yeah 
not to say will you be mine, but there's a, there's just other choices oh, they yeah. could go than the dance. Because mm-hmm. we finally are going to get the show down. Right here. Oh, I love purple. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Kill you. You idiot! You made me, remember? You dropped me into that vat of chemicals. That wasn't easy to get over. Don't think that I didn't try. I know you did. I just love that that bit when he tells him that he gives him like a, a hard right. Joker hits the the church bell. He bounces off the bell, turns around, and then takes another punch to mm-hmm. the face. Mm-hmm. And then Keaton's first line is like, "Really, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna kill you." Yeah, he doesn't say, "I'm taking you to Arkham." I'm taking you to the cops. No, it's I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I do too. Right. It's the Batman. We've they, they they set it up that way. It's not like it comes out of nowhere. And then he says it again. He says, "You dropped me into that bat of chemicals." Like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you made me, idiot. Yeah. Well, you made me, idiot. Mm-hmm. So now we're squared off, really, really in a healthy. Let's get all our sins on the table and have it out. Yeah. And they both have their issues. They're both freaks in their own right. They're both in costumes. And this is a man that has to dress up as a bat to be physically imposing. It's this man that looks permanently dyed white a clown. Yeah, this is weird, and it's supposed to be weird. Yeah. Yeah. So then they, 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 he, they get pulled over the ledge. We get our North by Northwest moment. And then, like, the most perfect shots of shots as he's, like, trying to get the helicopter ladder, he, like... Ties his foot to the gargoyle. I always loved that little bit. It was just like, man, like, well, like what luck. <laughs> great shot. <laughs> such a great shot. Batterings and boomerangs are yeah. so handy. And then the gargoyle falls off, and it's just like... Matter of time. A matter of time, yeah. I always kind of like... I like that look on his... Because it's like three rings. It's like one, he falls on one, yeah. falls on the other one, and then just drops at that point. And then as he splats on the ground, and there's just like a stone imprint of... The, there'd be so much more gruesome in real life. Oh yeah, his brain would be like on one side, but we get the back, like the back. He has like one more joke, even after death. It's just like this laugh, this bag of laughs. I always kind of thought that was like just so hilarious. Like as he died with this, like cheek, and I love that he died with his eyes open too. Mm-hmm. This like laughing bag that they pull out of his like coat pocket. And that's like just like one last send off with him. Let me give you something. Question. Okay. okay. Rank these three cathedral scenes in your order of favorite. Okay. Okay. Blade Runner, the end. <sighs> Vertigo. <sighs> Batman. One, two, and three. You can't do that to me. It's tough, huh? Because I actually do, I, as much as I don't like Blade Runner, mm-hmm. that's the one part of that film I really do like. Yeah. That's, that's shot so well, too. Uh, Probably Blade Runner 3, this, two, Vertigo, Vertigo one. one. Yeah, I think I probably, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Death of the Joker. Batman saves the day. He's kind of got public morale on his side. He's gifted them this gorgeous bat signal. So now going, we're setting up future installments that now the cops can rely on me for any crimes that might come about. And then we kind of just get the final parting shots of him just kind of standing. And it's triumphant. Like, I like that. I'm going to play it here when we transition to the nightcap. But it's like a triumphant it reminds me of the throne room music in the new hope. The heroes won the day. This is not the dark and brooding March. This is 
the heroic march. Mm-hmm. But then it ends with doom, doom, and we still have to re- embrace Batman's dark roots with this music. Yeah, I love the end of this. Like it gives me like goosebumps listening to that song. You know what I noticed this time? Did you see the ears on his cowl were significantly smaller than they had been the whole time too? Go and, back and watch. Oh, that and the end profile. scene. It's very, yeah. I wonder. It's just. Like, I can't see it. I've always, that's like, there's no way that was like Keaton. That was just probably some guy with like some forced perspective suit. Now, I've always noticed that. Right. They're different, huh? Yeah. Smaller ears. Mm -hmm. And then we get the sexy Prince music to play us out to the parking lot. One of the things, (laughs) one of the things that I really appreciate Batman and the fact that the city's called Gotham is their acknowledgement of Gothic architecture, whether it's ascending spires or flying buttresses. And if you think about the cowl with the, the spires that ascend as his ears, and then the top rounded part that goes between him, which tops the head, we are literally making a mask crafted from Gothic architecture. Yeah. That part of Batman to me is so, so, so brilliant. And if you can deliver that subtly and still adhere to all of the non-secular and secular beliefs that play with both of those characters, divine right, justice, um, forces of the night, all of that kind of stuff, it plays really well. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier for me, why Gotham in and of itself is a world almost bigger than the rest of DC. Uh, Yeah. But that final, that bit you're talking about, him there on the tower, looking at the bat signal, almost like our gargoyle himself, another key yeah. component of Gothic architecture mm-hmm. is just so appropriate to end it that way. And the music that last 15 seconds is home run, man. Yeah. And it feels triumphant for like play the, like the filmmakers too. It was like we, this long journey to make this thing, we yeah. made it. And I think like that whole just little bit kind of echoes that. So this was made for about $35 million, $411 million worldwide gross. It was the fifth highest grossing film of all time when it came out. Mm. Uh, it beat the, it was the biggest opening weekend record when it came out. The fastest film to hundred million, which like now that's like done in a day now with oh, like yeah. our current releases. Uh, it was big. And this was the number I was going to give you. So the merchandising totals pre-film release totaled $750 million. Oh my gosh. So you're talking clothing, toys, posters, anything. Mm-hmm. That's I would like to kind of see like the totals for like other films because like Star Wars we talked about on the New Hope episode that was all after the fact. Toys toys weren't even ready yet. I know I had a keychain of Batman. It was a little like <clears throat> Batman action figure thing. Yeah, and I had a Batman T-shirt. Yeah, and that was for somebody that at the time wasn't even bat crazy. I mean, you got in on 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 the on the hype. That's a staggering total for me mm-hmm. uh, before the film even comes out. Yeah. Just everyone wanted a piece of it. Yeah. That's, um, then of course we have our, our, our sequels and everything. I just thought the marketing was just done very well for this film with, with the, 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 the trailer and the poster. I mean, they took a lot of chances and I, it paid off for them big time. Yeah. Uh, Matt, I have a couple questions for you. What's your favorite tasting note of Batman? Can I say, the Joker's attire. Yeah, that's that's a great one. I just, I've said it earlier. He looks so good. Mm-hmm. Brian De Palma and the way he dresses the untouchables in that movie, which is Giorgio Armani, yeah, by the yeah, way, yeah, yeah, is just, I've said immaculate. Mm-hmm. It's immaculate. It's gorgeous. The Joker in a comic book way is 
as equally impressive. Yeah. That's my favorite. He looks so good. Mm-hmm. That's mine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Look at you picking out the the costuming is your favorite part. I, I like it. I, I dig know. it. Strange. I always like the like those like checkered baggy pants that he has. Like oh, yeah. Yeah. Good, good one. Mine's the the whole kind of parade float sequence batwing attack. As I told you, I reenacted that multiple times with my figurines. And uh, yeah, it was just, it's always, I just think it's just kind of staged appropriately. The Batwing itself is a cool vehicle. And yeah, taking the balloons, yeah, where's my balloons? He stole my balloons. Uh, that's, go ahead. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so that, that, that one's going to be mine. So now I ribbed this specifically from this film, Mr. Pat Hingle himself. I need to take a shot moment of Batman. What's that for you? I think it's the, we talked about this. This is just the use of Jerry Hall as the gangster mall that they use Mm. to be the dividing line between Jack Palance and Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. I brought that up to you. Yeah. Like Jerry Hall. Yeah. And, you know, then of course that gets into how did she... And then what they choose to do with her. Um, when she's walking around in that mask, mm-hmm. you know what movie that reminds me of. Eyes Without a Oh, face. for sure. Yeah. And then when they reveal it, like the beautiful, quote unquote, beautiful girl underneath the mask, mm-hmm. you know that's never going to go well. Yeah. And it doesn't. And when they reveal that and her face looks like, oh, God. I don't even know what, like scarred, like somebody shot it or something. It is a little bit eyes without a facey, like just all like deformed. Yeah. Burnt. Um, yeah. That, and we're never told like what he did to her. Because he didn't try to give her a smile. Mm-mm. He hasn't given her the smile X. He hasn't perma-whited her. He did her. like some surgical thing. What the hell? Uh, yeah, that's. So that's why I'm like, that's my, oh my God. Like, what exactly were you doing? And. Did we forget to write the rest of that in the script? And did we create with her? Because she doesn't die. No, she does. Does she die? You went to the bathroom during this scene. Oh, okay. Because, uh, yeah, because when he shows up at Vicky's apartment, he has the mask. He's like, we had a tragic accident. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah, yeah, threw yeah. herself out the window, which wonders, did you throw her out the window? Mm-hmm. You, there's like a lot not being told there. That's weird that that's my Jerry Hall bit. Yeah, that's interesting. Mine, It's I mentioned it earlier, it's the... Did Batman not let him drop or drop? And I can't remember when I made that revelation, but like it adds a layer to viewing the film in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it certainly changes the trajectory of the character. Maybe yeah. not so heroic, but maybe the right way to tackle an antagonist like the Joker. Agreed. Who's the master distiller on Batman? Hmm. It might be. I'm not going to give it to Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. God, I could say Jack Nicholson. Cause how do you go wrong with that? And his version of the Joker is so unique. Like they've all been different. Even Jared Leto's as much as you hate that one. And I'm not a fan either. It's mm-hmm. still different. Mm-hmm. I think I am going to give it to Jack Nicholson because one thing happened in this film. And I know that you and I are different on this one. It also made me not only appreciate him, but how much I appreciated how different Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was in the self-titled film. Like, you know that I, I love that film. Well, revisiting this one, it just, it makes me think of all Joker. What Cesar Romero, Mark Hamill, Ledger. Oh, yeah, I think about Cesar Romero, you're right. Joaquin Phoenix and just, 
just how different it can all be. Was that the one you were going to go to? Because if no, 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 no. Okay, because it was either between Jack Nicholson or, or Mr. Elfman, but I'll go with Jack Nicholson. Yeah, because I'm going to go Mr. Elfman. I figured this one is of them. probably one of my top three favorite film scores. His theme is that's it might be, it might be the best superhero like theme song. It's a march. It's triumphant. The, the whole score really like the Joker has his like melodic themes and the, the, even that that waltz scene that you don't like that waltz music that they're dancing to is like it's like it's a fisticuffs type of music but it's also a dancing music like it, it fits that scene pretty well because danny elfman leaves me like in a weird place too like because now when he gets into like the tim burton era that you're about to talk about the music it's like and now i'm just like get me out of here yeah his score for batman returns is significantly different than this the theme is hard to be found in that and it's a lot more of what i just did a version of yeah how are you gonna rate and grade batman we have rock gut well call single barrel top shelf this bourbon is like single barrel like teetering on top shelf that's good it is good how's batman single barrel um i can't say that it's aged terrifically it's mm-hmm. not a fault of the film but this movie is really important to yeah. what I'm really going to appreciate five to 10 years down the road. Yeah. If this movie doesn't happen, none of that other stuff that I really admired happens. Mm-hmm. Um, is it a perfect film? No. If it was just a one-off and it never had the influence going forward with other superhero films, would I give it the same grade? The answer is no. But the truth is they took a chance and I can respect that. Yeah. It wasn't spec'd, but this story was. This isn't adapted from, it's a compilation of some Joker tropes, but not a specific Joker story. Yeah. They took a chance. It was 10 years to get it done. It made a fortune. It revolutionized film. Marketing. Like the whole nine. Yeah. So for that reason, it's single barrel for me. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to go top shelf. <laughs> but for everything that I've kind of said leading up, look. I can name three better Batman films right off the top of my head. And they were all done by Mr. Nolan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hope we get to talk about that trilogy one of these days. Cause that was just such a revelation for me of what the character could be in addition to this. Cause we'd have some different takes on that. I th- think between the two. Definitely. Of us. Yeah. Um, but what this film meant for me watching it at such a young age and just kind of figuring out those story beats, reenacting all that, finding little in uh, eccentricities within within the through line of the plot. I loved Jack Nicholson as the Joker growing up. I loved Keaton. He's still my favorite Batman. Man, I, there's something missing there where they could bring Keaton back to do like a Batman Beyond film with him as an older Bruce Wayne. And man, cool. I would eat that up. Yeah. Um, but the most important thing, we talked about Halloween. That's the film that made me want to make movies. Batman 89 is the movie that made me fall in love with film. Really? Yeah. Wow. It made me want to know more of what was out there of self-discovery and just kind of taking that plunge into the deep end with some other films. And it was, it wasn't star Wars for me and it wasn't like Raiders as much as I still love those films. It was this one Mm -hmm. and no one else should per se that this is their favorite bat. Unless you feel the same way about me, you grew up with it and you have the same feelings because there's better Batman. But for me, this is the most important Batman for me. The most important movie, I think, to come out in my lifetime. Oh, that's beautiful. So, yeah. To Tim, what, Tim Burton? To Tim Burton. Life, <laughs> to Jesse. Tim Burton. And wow. I, I don't like Tim Burton. So, <laughs> yeah. So, to that. To that. To that.
Isn't that just like so triumphant? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love that. I love that little little piece. Nice. Uh, yeah. Let's end with a little nightcap. Still talking about Batman a bit. Why don't you Why don't you hit me with that question? The nightcap question is: What's the Batman story that's not been told on film that you want to see? Excellent. Give me your pitch. This is easy for me. I've been wanting to see this for years. For a second, I thought Dark Knight Rises was going to be this story, but it, it wasn't. And it's a, a storyline called Prey. And this is actually, it's a Hugo Strange story about, you know, him trying to discover the identity of Batman. And he gets in with this, like, vigilante uh, GCPD task force. And then there's this other villain that they create called the Night Scourge. And Catwoman's, Catwoman's involved. It's a great story that I don't think a lot of people talk about. Um, you know, Night, Nightfall, rightfully so, gets a lot of praise. But this is one I've always wanted to see. And I think it's it's a perfect portrayal of just the diabolical nature of Hugo Strange, which I, I really want to see that character on the big screen one of these days. It sounds good. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that story, but I like that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go with The Court of Owls. I like Batman stripped down. Mm-hmm. The gadgets are really cool. The utility belt's really cool. I like Batman stripped down, but I'm going to take the Court of Owls storyline, okay. which is essentially the patriarchal society of Gotham. They've been around longer than anyone <clears throat> in Gotham has. They've been working in the shadows. It's this underground society. They wear masks that yeah. all look like owls. I want Batman to be out one night. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to a little bit more than a pitch here. Okay. Batman to be out one night fighting Killer Croc, I don't care who. And he comes home to find everything in the Batcave, his money, everything gone, Mm. stolen. Like, I mean, stripped down. Nothing except maybe the car that he drove and the suit on his body. And as he goes about trying to figure out who is involved in stealing it, which is where I think Batman really is excellent for me in the detective capabilities of detective comics. He looks into why his stuff is being sold on the black market to the various nefarious forces of Gotham to use against him with nothing except his wits. Mm -hmm. His money's gone. It's like, I mean, stripped down. I think it's a little bit like that game you like so much where it all happens in the course of one night on Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah, or Arkham Origins. Arkham Origins. Yeah, that's good. Right? Um, That's what I want. Mm-hmm. And it's the Court of Owls? Like, it's them? And the Court of Owls is the one behind all That'd of it. That'd be pretty good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's a good run there that they had there with that new 52. I liked that. Yeah. That was one of the standout, I think, storylines that they were able to come up with. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to see an extension of the Bat Family. I know, like, they were like, I don't want to see Robin or that, but like, it's 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 been done. Like, those Arkham games are a great example of how you can expand the lore of the Dark Knight. Right? They they do it so well, and it's maybe it's just because it is a game. And I don't know, you can do it in film. I think there's 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 a case to be made there for that. Yeah. Excellent, Matt. It's been a lot of fun. Batman's a very important movie to me. I I loved watching it with you there. And kind of just revisiting this film from 1989. Next week we're gonna head to 1982, and oh, man, or like we're gonna—it's like a total 360 for me. Or is that a 180? It's like a 180, like off the road. Look, people—I know people love this film. I think it was the highest-grossing film of the 1980s from 1982. Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Nice. I don't know. If you like the film, maybe you don't want to listen to the episode because I'm not going to be kind to it. Um, I don't think you are either. 
No, I'm going to try to go in as open-minded as I can without my preconceived notions that I'm sitting here telling you with, like, I know I'm going to hate it. Yeah. But I'm going to try to go in there and... There's things to like. Evaluate the totality of it without trying to be... Nece- like it necessary for me to prove myself correct. Yeah. Good. So we'll I think, see. I think, Good I'm, luck. I think I'm more upset about the carnage that ET left in his wake. Oh man. Uh, well, we'll talk about all that next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. We haven't talked about Spielberg in a while. This will be good. And just to kind of like take a look at a, a popular film that I think is held in pretty high regard that I think is pretty just blown out of proportion for mm-hmm. me, okay. but maybe that's how I saw it, but I haven't watched it in like, 10 years it's about the same so this will be a good fresh rewatch for us what would be interesting to do is maybe i will watch it with my family because mm. i know my daughter's never seen it and it's see what she thinks right mm. and then we'll do it again Saturday Ooh, that, that, that sounds like a good I think plan i'm gonna do that oh excellent perfect matt cheers 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 i gotta get going i gotta go and you know give the batmobile a car wash it's the 89 batmobile which i how they designed it though like that thing would take corners like very shittily. <laughs> it's no so, it's turning capability. Long. It's like a it's like a PT cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Handles like a truck. Yes. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Batman is property of Warner Brothers Pictures and the Goober Peters Company, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs>